الجزيرة بودكاست This time last week, Nisreen Alamin was in Sudan during Eid. It was supposed to be a celebration of the end of Ramadan. Instead, just a few days later, she found herself sitting in a minibus with her parents and her daughter on her lap. Her father is almost 90 years old. Her daughter Layla is just three. We saw the destruction driving through Khartoum from Soba on a minibus trying to get to a bus stop in Bahrain where we would then catch a bus stop. But a Their home, just outside Sudan's capital city, no longer felt safe. Thanks to a power struggle that's torn Khartoum apart. Outside were fighter jets, airstrikes, and soldiers in the street. So they decided to leave, along with hundreds of thousands of others. Those who can are trying to flee. Dozens of foreign governments have flown out their citizens and diplomatic staff. There are shortages of food, water, fuel, and medicine. Nisreen was scared, but felt like her family had few options left. Sometimes we would see smoke, black smoke, engulfing the area we were in. So how did Nisreen get out with her family? And what are civilians in Sudan doing to save themselves as fighting continues with no end in sight? For some, leaving isn't an option, at least not yet. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Before we get started, I should probably tell you it was tough to get a hold of Nisreen while she was traveling. She thought she would have a minute to talk. Then all of a sudden, she had to rush to the airport along with the rest of her family. So I sent her some questions via voice note. And thankfully, when her flight to safety arrived, she was able to answer them. Hi, Nisreen. It's Malika. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We know how stressful this time must be, and we are really appreciative that you have turned to the take to get your story out there. Uh, Listeners of the podcast might remember your voice from the last time you were on another time of upheaval in Sudan after a military takeover. Um, But for those who are newer, let's start with an introduction. Hi, my name is Nisreen Al-Amin. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology and African studies at the University of Toronto. I'm also a mother to a three-year-old, and I've been traveling with my elderly parents. What brought you to Sudan? A few weeks ago, I decided to travel to Sudan to visit my parents and to introduce my three-year-old daughter, Leila to my family back home to spend Ramadan there and Eid as well, and also to do some follow-up research for a book I'm writing. So you were in Sudan to visit family for the Eid holiday, and then conflict broke out. Now, at this point, it's been just over two weeks since fighting started between Sudan's army, led by Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and a powerful paramilitary group known as the RSF, or the Rapid Support Forces, 
led by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hamedi. Is war how you would describe what's going on now? I would describe it as a power struggle between two heavily armed factions of the military coup regime under Hamidti and Rohan vying essentially for political power. Experiencing that power struggle has felt like war. I just don't know if I would use those words because it feels more like a, a hijacking or a kind of siege that we're caught up in. I think the point I'm trying to make here is that there are no sides here. That whoever wins this power struggle is going to be devastating for Sudan and continue us on a path of brutal military dictatorship. And so I think that's partly why it feels like something that's kind of hard to describe, that civilians, that ordinary people are ultimately bearing the brunt of um, this, this incredibly brutal and senseless violence. What were you seeing before you left? We woke up to the sound of gunfire on April 15th in the morning and then remained sheltered in place for several days. And during those days, we experienced this violence mostly through sounds. We could hear gunfire, missiles, explosions. There would be a lull, and then it would kind of escalate again. We were staying in the neighborhood my mother grew up in, which is called Hindat Hamad in Khartoum North. It's a neighborhood that's been particularly hard hit because the rapid support forces have been embedding themselves there for a while. And it's also right across from the Republican Palace. Having to shelter in place meant that we were stuck at home with little food. And Leila was starting to get hungry. And so I kind of took the risk. I think it was day two or three when a ceasefire was announced, which is a misnomer because none of the ceasefires have been real ceasefires. But I went out and tried to look for food and most of the neighborhood stores had run out of food. People say they are running out of food, water and medicine. We are really suffering. Fuel has run out, bakeries are closed and we can't find a loaf of bread. Sudan has been brought to a standstill after attempts to open a humanitarian corridor failed. Fighting destroyed Khartoum's main water station, raising fears of widespread food and water shortages. The only thing I could find was powdered milk. I wanted fresh eggs, fresh milk, just things that could nourish her. And, you know, when I tried to get bread, there was a long line. And when we got to the end of it, there was no more bread left. There's an extreme shortage of fuel. I just felt like this is a sort of very small glimpse into the larger kind of situation that people are living across Sudan, where sheltering in place is becoming more and more dangerous because people are running out of food and water and there is no kind of safe way to get it to people especially as a lot of the NGOs are evacuated. Um, so it's now on mostly the neighborhood resistance committees and kind of neighbors among themselves to try to do so at great risk. So you decided it was too much. 
And you've been tweeting about what happened next. You left Khartoum, which was a pretty risky journey in itself. And you stopped a few places along the way looking for safety. And I know you were headed northeast. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until a, a few days before we evacuated that we kind of saw the destruction. Um, we could just see all kinds of missiles and remnants of the violence thrown across the city. We could see kind of burnt, hollowed out buildings. Uh, a market had been burnt close to where we caught the bus. The streets were essentially controlled by the rapid support forces and got stopped several times. So you drove through Khartoum. You get to the town of Bahri, which is north of the capital. At one point, your bus was racing against fighter jets through the desert. But along the way, you were stopped twice by armed soldiers. On one of those stops, a rapid support force of a soldier accused one of the passengers of having defected and essentially said, you were with us yesterday, why did you leave? What are you doing now? And there was this kind of moment where we all thought he might get pulled off the minibus. He then came across around um, to where I was sitting with Layla and um, started asking me questions kind of with his hand on on his gun. And it was just one of those moments for me where I I really felt like, you know, this is a... It's just a surreal experience to have to parent through this, to have to figure out how to navigate a situation like that how to answer the very legitimate questions of a three-year-old about why we were hearing these sounds, why we were being stopped, why we were being questioned. The rest of Nisreen's journey, plus how others are getting out of Sudan after the break. On Inside Story this week, what does the war in Sudan mean for Ethiopia? The two countries share a border and the Nile River. Addis Ababa is concerned about the security situation, so... Are there risks of a spillover? Listen and subscribe to the Inside Story podcast. Jihan Henry is not Sudanese, but she's worked in Sudan for many years. She's a human rights lawyer, and she knows the people and the country well, especially in the turbulent few years since Sudan's revolution. I'm a human rights lawyer and a Sudan watcher. I have been working on or in Sudan for over 15 years with the UN in in Darfur. More recently, I was in Sudan during the period of the transitional government, a short-lived effort to try to transform Sudan after the fall of their former longtime military dictator, Omar al-Bashir, in 2019. And now what Jihan's seeing is how hard it is for people to leave. This is like beyond everyone's worst nightmare. I have somebody who was uh, writing to me and she says, I'm writing this message and bombing sounds are close. There is no safe place. Um, And she says, we just don't know where to go. I don't know what to do, she said. 
I think the decision has a lot to do with whether people have the money and the resources to make the rather expensive journey to the borders and whether they have the the ability to, to be at those borders and brave those serious lines. Those lines can take days. Hadil Mohammed, a Sudanese architect who's now in neighboring Egypt, shared her story with Al Jazeera. There were buses on buses, coaches on coaches that were waiting to get their papers done so they can move across the border. There were thousands of people just lying down waiting. And lines are not the only obstacle. We had agreements with some coaches to take us outside of uh, towards the borders and they would not show up. And that's a situation that's been happening a lot to a lot of Sudanese. This is Sally Mudawi. She also spoke to Al Jazeera about trying to get her family out. So basically, I have a three-year-old cousin who's British national. She's with her mom, who's Sudanese national. She's severely sick. She's supposed to have a tonsillitis surgery due to it getting infected. So she has to get on this plane. They're refusing to let them on the plane. There is so much racism at the border. They're only taking people who are either white or either Saudi or from other nationalities. Even that is a struggle. People have slept over at the border in dire conditions. The the, the help has been, there's no help. The vast majority of Sudanese are still actually in Sudan, and many of them really haven't moved. They haven't had the, the ability to move, or they haven't been ready to emotionally. As for Nisreen, after her bumpy ride across the desert from Khartoum, she made it with her parents and her daughter to Sudan's eastern coast. So eventually, you ended up in the town of Port Sudan, up in the north, across the Red Sea from the Saudi city of Jeddah at the harbor. How long did all of this take in the end? We left Khartoum on April 23rd in the morning and arrived in Jeddah on Wednesday, April 26th in the morning. We spent one night in Attara, but otherwise spent this time on the road or traveling by sea on a ship that the Saudis provided. That journey itself from Port Sudan to Jeddah took about 24 hours by ship. What part of your journey am I catching you on now? I'm at the airport in Istanbul right now, about to catch a flight to Washington, D.C., where my husband is going to be meeting up with us. So what happens next? What is your daughter doing? How are your parents feeling? Talk to me about how you're feeling. I'm feeling mostly exhaustion, but also relief. My parents and I split in Jeddah. They ended up on a different flight to Istanbul and are going to be staying there for a couple of weeks before heading to the States. We had to make this decision for a variety of reasons partly because of my father's health. I'm really grateful that we managed to get my parents out. My father initially didn't want to evacuate and it took some convincing and I'm incredibly relieved that he's out and safe along with my mother. The less than 24 hours we spent in Jeddah, we were able to rest a little bit, eat a little bit, 
but there were also some quite challenging moments. My daughter hasn't been feeling great. She's been complaining of a stomach ache and is incredibly tired. And so we're all kind of on our, yeah, just um, ready to, to, to be somewhere where things are more certain. And I think for me, the most important thing at the moment is to kind of stay focused on all of our families that have remained in Sudan, that are still under siege, that are experiencing a humanitarian catastrophe that is unimaginable, really, and to support them. To be honest, I haven't really had the time to process what I'm feeling. I am, um, and, and so it's hard for me to really talk about it. I think partly what I'm feeling is that my story of evacuation shouldn't be exceptionalized and that what we need to be focused on right now is everybody who remains in Sudan, who does not have access to safe passage for food and water, let alone being able to leave. So I think, I mean, that's what I want to focus on for the next however long it takes, you know. Um, for me, it's going to be, you know, get back home, rest, and then go right back to figuring out how to support my family and, and friends in Sudan. I think the only option for the future of Sudan is a full transition to civilian rule, which is what people have been demanding for a very long time. And while I think the international community has a role to play right now, especially in ensuring safe passage of food and water and protection for all the civilians who are caught up in this senseless violence. I think any international intervention moving forward needs to be Sudanese-led, and it needs to respect the demands of those who are experiencing this violence, who are most impacted by it, and who know what's best for Sudan and for the future of our country. And that's The Take. We'll be back tomorrow. And just a reminder, The Take has gone daily, so you can catch us five days a week, Monday through Friday. But if you miss us, you can always catch updates on Instagram and Twitter. We're at AJE Podcasts. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and Chloe K. Lee, with Nagin Oliai, Ashish Malhotra, Khaled Sultan, Sonia Bagat, Miranda Lin, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Munira Al-Dosari are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.